This was six or seven years ago, but I remember waking up that morning, and no one else was up yet. It was quiet in the house, still kind of dark. I went out to the main room, and I turned on one of the softer dimmer lights so that I, I could see a little bit. It was near the kitchen, and I didn't even notice this at first. But I grabbed a glass of water. I was going to sit down, have some time with God before everybody else was up. And then I noticed it. And at first it seemed like it was all over the floor. So I turned on another light just to see a little bit better. Now this area of our house at that time was outside the kitchen area, kind of between the kitchen and the family room where we had our couch and the TV. And um, It was a good-sized area, not small. And then near a wall off to the side of that area was where my wife was set up to do all of her work. Now my wife's work, if you don't know, uh, it involves baking and decorating, um, and she is absolutely fantastic at it, the best. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but all kinds of stuff, cakes, cupcakes, candies, and her specialty is custom cookies, and unbelievable stuff. She's a true artist. Um, she was even hired once, I'll say this, years ago, and did a wedding cake that ended up in a TV commercial. Uh, but if you get the chance to see some of her work, it's awesome. Uh, if you get the chance ever to taste something, do it. So I digress, though. Uh, on this morning, with the other light now on, everything in full view, I saw ants. Um, I remember this one well because this was not your tiny little trail of a few individual ants going somewhere. This was a monstrous trail of ants, probably almost a half inch wide, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, branching out into a couple of different areas of the house. And remember I said like it looked like it was everywhere? Well, of course not everywhere. That's just what it looks like when you just wake up and it's kind of dark. But I followed the trail back from this kitchen counter area across the room four or five feet towards the family room and then it turned and went another six or seven feet over towards the wall and then it turned another direction and this entire trail went another 12 or 13 feet down this wall towards the back end of that room kind of at the back of the house where it looked like they were coming in from under or in the wall somehow and and again this entire trail was probably a little under a half inch wide ants going in both directions it is the most ants I have ever seen anywhere at least in my life even since then now I should tell you in our household we don't like ants <laughs> I don't know about you we don't like ants and I'll say that my wife especially does not like ants. I'll just leave that right there. But thankfully, nobody else was awake yet and hadn't seen anything. And I took the next 30 or 40 minutes and kind of did some more research and checked it out, uh, quietly cleaned up the entire thing before anybody else got up and had to see that. And uh, thankfully, the area where she does her work was not infested of all things, but that's a, a, a blessing. And I was thinking about this idea, this story, I should say, uh, as I was prepping for this message for this week because we're coming to the place in our journey through the book of Exodus where we've reached what gets known as the plagues of Egypt. And, and I know that even with that many ants, the most I've ever seen in my life anywhere, um, this doesn't even come close to a plague. I know that. But the thought was still in my head, right? So in Exodus, there's so much that can be said here uh, about the story of the plagues. And there's so much going on even in the story itself and in the details. There's the plagues themselves, the ten of them. There's the ideas about 
the plagues and, and what they're directed at and what they're talking against some of the different gods of Egypt. There's Pharaoh. There's the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There's these interactions between Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron. There's these Egyptian magicians and other Egyptian leaders. And in this section of Exodus, it's, it's well, more than four chapters long. They begin at the end of chapter 7, and then it carries into more detail in chapter 12. But for our time today, we're going to be covering Exodus chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And so we should be out of here before 1 o'clock. Uh, no, just kidding. We're not going to be reading all of them in their entirety. We're going to approach this a little bit differently today. And so we're not going to get through all of the, the text word for word. But I want to give us kind of an overview of the plagues. And then we're going to come back around to the passages that I have in your notes. And I've put those there for you. And you can find those notes uh, novachurch.com or through our Nova Church app uh, if you have those and you can follow along. So if you're familiar with the story, you know probably that there's a progression in these plagues in more ways than one, actually. Um, and so I just want to start with this general retelling of the plagues. Uh, as they progress, each one gets worse than the previous one. Uh, and for your reference, I put a little kind of chart-looking thing at the beginning of your notes so you can get more of a bird's-eye view of the ten plagues, what they were, the order, the verses that are there. That's something you can also refer back to later because, again, this covers a, a, a larger section of the book of Exodus, um, you know, over four chapters. Um, as these plagues begin, we're informed that the Egyptian magicians are actually able to mirror what's happening and they duplicate some of them. The first of the ten plagues was noted in last week's sermon from Pastor Dean. It was the Nile water itself turning to blood. And the Egyptian magicians, they were able to duplicate that and also turn the water into blood, we're told. Next came frogs. This one's almost humorous, I mean, if you think about it. Frogs are not really that scary or creepy. But when they are everywhere, in the house, in the cabinets, in the bowls, on the beds, on people, when there's that many and they are everywhere, they become a little scary and a little creepy. <laughs> so, um, and the magicians, we're told, are able to duplicate this one too, which really didn't help things, right? More frogs. We're going to put more frogs on top of frogs. After the frogs came gnats. I don't know about you, but I don't like pesky little bugs everywhere. I already mentioned we don't like ants. And again, the gnats are everywhere. So we're told that the magicians tried to duplicate this one, but they couldn't. First sign of humiliation. And in their dialogue, they even describe this one as this is the finger of God. <laughs> That's what they say. The Egyptians, not Moses or Aaron. The Egyptians say this is the finger of God. And outside of that, the magicians were also kind of like the religious leaders of the day, at least in, in Egypt as well. And they tended to keep themselves clean historically. They bathed regularly. They didn't touch insects. And so these gnats were all over everything and everyone, including them. Kind of a double humiliation. Maybe they're starting to get wind of something here with these plagues. After the gnats came flies. I think that flies are worse than gnats. That's just me. And here with this plague, we saw one new, and we get introduced to one new idea. We're told specifically that this plague is only on the Egyptians and would not affect the Israelites. 
God says that the flies would not be in the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived because he was making a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. After the flies comes a plague on the livestock. All the livestock. Horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, goats. All of them died. But the distinction, we're told, remained for this one. And this plague also did not affect the animals of the Israelites, only those of the Egyptians. The next plague is boils. We read that festering boils will break out on men and on animals. And we're also told that this was so bad that the magicians couldn't even stand up physically before Moses because of all the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians, it specifies. Again, hinting at the idea that this did not affect the Israelites, only the Egyptians. After boils came hail, and we read that this was the worst storm that had ever come upon Egypt. But they were given a warning. They were told to bring inside all your people and all your animals because this will be so bad and so forceful that anyone or anything caught outside in the hail wouldn't survive. We're told that the hail beat down everything growing in the fields and it stripped every single tree, is what the text says. And the only place it did not hail was in the land of the Israelites. After the hail, God sent locusts. And we're told that this was unlike anything their fathers or forefathers had ever seen from the day they first settled in the land of Egypt. We're also told specifically that the locusts were being sent to devour what little bit was left after the hail stripped everything. And at this point in the dialogue, the magicians go before Pharaoh and they say, let them go. Don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? And there's more to these descriptions, of course, and the story seems pretty dark. But next comes a plague of actual darkness. This one's hard, I think, for us to fathom. But it's described as a darkness so dark that it can be felt. And it wasn't short. It lasted for three days. We read that all the Egyptians couldn't see anyone else or even leave their places. Yet all the Israelites in the land of Goshen had light. I find this plague interesting because Pharaoh was also considered the son of Ra, the god of the sun, the chief god of the Egyptians. Ra was in control of the rising and the setting of the sun each day, but not this day or the next or the next. Three days, utter and complete darkness. I remember that old saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. I'm sorry to say in our story of the plagues, that is not the case here. After the darkness came the next plague, the plague on the firstborn. The last plague of Egypt was a plague of death on the firstborn son of everyone, and it says even the cattle. But again, only on Egypt because God provides a way for his people to be saved from this plague. And that's just a summary of the ten plagues. Again, there's so much going on, 
in these four chapters of Exodus and a little bit of the one before and after chapter 8 and into chapter 12. And it's heavy. And as I was putting this message together, I had to stop and think for a moment. At this point, we need to breathe a little and we need to come up for air maybe. But it's not appropriate here to make a joke or tell a funny story. Sometimes we're sitting in the middle of something and it's heavy and it seems hopeless maybe. And then I remembered something just a few days back. I learned something many years ago that I actually remember this often as I study the Bible. And I definitely have been remembering it again as we've been studying through Exodus. And in particular, this section of Exodus about the plagues. And let me explain what it is that I learned because I think it's important. And it's something that sounds so simple, yet it's something that I think we often forget. So I'm going to tell you what it is. Then I'm going to illustrate it with a different passage of Scripture and talk just briefly about why it's important before we come back into the story of the plagues. Are you ready? Here it is. It's the idea that when we study the Bible, anytime a verse or passage mentions God or Jesus, the main point in that verse or passage is going to be about God or Jesus. Right? Sounds incredibly simple, but we often forget this. All the other points become secondary. And now secondary points might be important. They might be extremely important. But they're not as important as what comes first. The main point about God or Jesus. Here's one example that I, I remember learning about why this is important. If you know the verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and it reads like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know this verse. We love this verse. Yet many times we quote and utilize this verse in the context of talking with people about who we are and our sinfulness and why we need to f uh, confess our sins for forgiveness. And that is a true statement. We do need to confess our sins. I know that I do. But if we think about the guideline, if a passage mentions God, then the main point of that passage will be something about God. That passage in 1 John does mention God. It's the he that's mentioned. That's referring to God. So the main point is not about our need for confession and our sinfulness, but rather the main point is what it says about God. He is faithful. He is just. He forgives. He purifies us from all unrighteousness, this verse says. These are some powerful thoughts for us, and they help our minds to come into focus on passages of Scripture and focus on the main points of the verse, which is not our sinfulness and our need of confession, but rather it's God and His faithfulness and how He is just and forgiving. And so with that idea in mind, I went back into these chapters of Exodus and I reread through these four chapters looking for how that frame of mind helps me to see beyond just the facts because it's important to see God in the plagues. Because if this story mentions God, and it does, then the main points from this story are going to be about God. And this for me was eye-opening, actually. And I think some of the things that, uh, that we see need to be mentioned, and these are what I've included through the different points in your notes, as we seek a retelling of this story in light of the story's main character, and that's God. So let's walk back through it. In the story of the plagues, this is all about God. 
in the plague of blood from the previous chapter in 7, we read this. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. That's Exodus 7, verses 16 through 17, the first part of 17. And right here, at the beginning of this story, it states both the reason God wants his people free and also the reason that God sent the plagues. And both of those reasons are about God. They're not even about the Egyptians per se. They're about God first and foremost. In the plague of frogs, both of these ideas are reiterated. Chapter 8, verse 1 reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. And in verse 10, we read, Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. In the plague of gnats, we read in chapter 8, the beginning of verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Remember, this is when the magicians couldn't duplicate what was going on. So now there's this statement of the recognition of the power of God in these moments. In the plague of flies, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. Again, this reiteration of the reason for God's people to be released. And it's to worship God. And in the continuing conversation later in the chapter, we also read, But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Exodus 8, verse 22. Things will be different for Israel in the land of Goshen. And this is so that they'll know that it's God doing this. In the plague on the livestock, we read again in chapter 9, the beginning of verse 1, let my people go so that they may worship me. And after that, in verse 4, we see again this distinction between Egypt and Israel made by God. In the next plague, the plague of hail, we also read that God wants his people freed to worship him, chapter 9, verse 13. And we note that the Israelites didn't experience that hail in chapter 9, verse 26. But there's something else that comes up in chapter 9. A reason given for the plagues. Exodus 9, verses 14 through 16. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there was no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's words about the reason for the plague. And they're about him and his glory and his power. In the plague of locusts, we get a little bit more of this too. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, we read, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know 
that I am the Lord. And in the next verse, again, God reiterates this idea of wanting his people free to be able to worship him and to do so freely and on their own, not enslaved by the Egyptians. And now throughout all this, I haven't even mentioned yet some of the interesting moments and interactions with Pharaoh himself. He has some moments of what we would think is clarity, and we think he's going to let them go. But then he changes his mind, or he hardens his heart, or the text tells us sometimes that God hardens his heart. And this happens over and over and time and time again. And there's even some occasions where Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, and he asks them to help the plague go away now or even to pray for him and for Egypt. That's interesting. He'll tell them to go ahead and go, and that they can go and be free, but then he tries to put conditions on it. You have to do it this way, or you have to do this here. Interesting interactions with this man, Pharaoh. And with the plague of darkness, we read this in Exodus 10, verses 27 and 28. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Here, Pharaoh threatens death. Thinking that he's the one with the power, right? After all these plagues, he still thinks he's the one with the power. And then we read of the last plague that comes next, the plague of death on the firstborn. And this was something I never really thought about until this last week or so. Pharaoh threatens death. And God's response is that death is coming. Just not in the way Pharaoh thought. And again, this new reading of the text centering on the actual main character, God, was eye-opening for me. God could have liberated his people with just one plague. We know this because he says it. But the ten plagues are a demonstration of God's power and really of how everybody else is powerless. And as a demonstration of who God is in his power in this sense, the plagues are actually missional. Their aim is that God's name would be proclaimed and seen and God would be lifted up in all the earth. And I think there are some things that we learn about God in this story. First and foremost, it's the fact that these chapters are about God his character, his uniqueness, his power. Exodus is not so much about Moses or the Israelites or the Egyptians or Pharaoh. It's about God. We learn that God will show his people and indeed all people that he alone is God over every area and every place, even here in Egypt at this time. And remember that God has purposed to reveal his name ever since that first encounter with Moses. We talked about it a few weeks ago at the burning bush where he introduces himself, you could say. And he says his name, I am. What's clear here in Exodus chapters 8 through 11 is that God planned these plagues so he could display his power and his glory. And it's in the plagues that we learn some truths about God. And I've got four in your notes that we'll talk about briefly. The first truth we learn about God is that the Lord is the true God. Pharaoh was not offended by the Israelites having their own God. What he took offense to was the idea that the God of Israel might have a claim or have something to say about him and his life. He's saying, don't impose your God and your beliefs on me. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him was the question. And we heard about that in last week's sermon from Pastor Dean. 
The plagues are God's answer to that way of thinking. God's declaring that he is the only true and only relevant God. And he's the only God that's worth obeying. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing I think we learn about God through the plagues is that the Lord is the mighty creator. Sometimes we're actually told the source of the plague, but the bigger idea at work here is that God deploys all of creation at his bidding. Land, sea, and sky. Weather, water, elements, animals, insects, even on the physical people. God deploys all of creation, and all of creation is mobilized against God's enemy, Pharaoh. And these plagues didn't just happen. They happened in God's timing. They happened in God's instigation. They happened through God's chosen messengers. This is the true God who is also the mighty creator, or the almighty creator, I should say. The third thing we learn here about God through the plagues is that the Lord is a holy judge. This one was interesting. I read this and I liked the idea, so I'll share it. In the plague of boils, we're told that the boils come from soot in a furnace. That's where it's kind of specified. Like I said, we're sometimes told the source of the plague. This is probably a brick kiln, not a furnace you would just cook with in your house, but soot like that is usually from making something. And if you remember, the Israelites were enslaved, and one of their primary tasks was making bricks. (laughs) So the source of Israel's oppression becomes the source of Egypt's judgment. (laughs) The punishment fits the crime. And God uses that soot from the kiln to send this plague of boils. It's interesting. But similar things happen to us, I think. We were made originally to live out in obedience to God in dependence on him but Romans chapter 1 tells us that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we have now been worshiping created things rather than the creator our lives become disordered emotional darkness mental breakdown relational conflict physical ailments and addictions pains sickness entered the world and we were all heading towards death Not at all how God intended things to be in the Garden of Eden. And Egypt now, in the history, Egypt is a picture of life in meltdown under God's judgment. The plagues, they're pointing to something bigger and more terrible. And God told Pharaoh his judgment would come, and it did. And God has told all of humanity that judgment is coming. And the plagues here reveal that the judgment is real. And the very real coming judgment leads us, though, to the fourth thing we learn about God through the plagues. The Lord is the gracious Savior. Absolutely a Savior. The plagues were pointers. They're pointing to this ultimate sign of judgment and salvation, which we know is all and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, God says, He is sending the plagues, so that you may tell your children and grandchildren, it says. God wants worshipers for generations to come, and he sends the plagues to free the Israelites to worship him and to give them reasons for doing so. And I think it's the same for us. God sent his son 
to free us to worship him and to give us reasons to do so. The difference is we've been given more reasons to worship than just these 10 like the uh, Egyptians and the Israelites. They saw both judgment and salvation in the plagues. And we've seen both judgment and salvation in and through the cross of Jesus Christ. Death is the end point for those who do not know and obey God. It was like that for the Egyptians. It's like that for all of humanity. But for those who do know and obey God, there is salvation from our mighty Savior. And it seems so to us maybe really terrible and hard and brutal. But the Bible never, never conceals or makes light of the reality of God's judgment on sin. And neither should we. God hates sin and will one day punish all sin, not just Pharaoh's and the Egyptians. But this story, it reveals the character of God. It reveals the work of God. And God doesn't change. And neither do his plans and neither do God's purposes because he is unchangeable. God is still sovereign over all things, just like in that time. And I think that should drive us to prayer because there's nothing outside of God's control. There's nothing too hard for God. There's no area of our life which we should not or cannot trust God. So God is still sovereign. God is also still a jealous God. Jealous in the sense for his name and his glory. And we echo this when we say it. One example is in the Lord's Prayer. That line that says, hallowed be your name. Glorified be your name. And this should drive us to worship God and to praise him and to serve him and to be obedient and to do so only to him and to no one else. God is still sovereign. God is still jealous. God is still a wrathful God, you can say. He will not let humanity or anything else in all of creation continue to rebel against him forever. He won't do that. He's told us he won't do that. He will punish. He will put an end to it. He will bring death. It's interesting that we find more talk of hell and of God's wrath through Jesus Christ in the scriptures than anywhere else and, anyone, and than anyone else that talks about it. But even though God is still a wrathful God, we also see that he is this saving God. He is gracious. He's compassionate. He loves the people that he has made and he longs to save them and see everybody come to a saving knowledge and relationship with him. And these are the things that we learn about God and we see about God in the plagues of Egypt. And this is all a part of seeing God in the plagues, I think, in our lives too. As we sit in the moments we find ourselves living in, maybe it's going from bad to worse, we think, and we find ourselves alone in the darkness. May we be reminded to reframe the story of our lives also in light of the main character in our lives especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Again, it sounds so simple, but I, I've been around the block long enough to know that simple does not mean easy. <laughs> but the concept is simple. Because whatever we're in, God reigns over this too. It's not all about me. It's really about him. He will punish sin, 
but I think we can rejoice that he still saves through his compassion and through his love and through his grace. And that's just a little bit about what I learned in attempting to retell this story in light of seeing God in the plagues of Egypt. Amen? Amen.